Welcome to episode six of our Thirsty Podcast. This is Pastor Michael Zarling and Pastor Jeremy Leitonen here at Epiphany Lutheran Church in Racine, Wisconsin. We're going to be talking first about chapter 10 of Mark's Gospel. And uh, hopefully you've read through the chapter because what we want to do first is kind of talk about moral relativism and then relate it to chapter 10. So Pastor Leitonen, what would be your definition of moral relativism? Uh, well, moral would be uh, defining what is right and wrong uh, in a really simple kind of basic way to say it. And then relativism uh, sort of means that uh, it's squishy. It can move around and change that something might be right or wrong a long time ago, but now today uh, it's not the same list of right and wrong things. Uh, or or it could be relative pertaining to the people, that for some people they might think that uh, homosexuality is okay, and others might say it's not okay, and both of both of them are right in the eyes of a moral relativist. Uh, you can't tell them how they should feel or not feel e- on either side. Right. So moral relativism, or you might call it subjectivism, shifts the focus of truth from the object to the subject, from reality to opinion, from what can be known to what can only be felt. And when that's happened, there's really not much hope for a reasoned discussion because you can't debate subjectivity or opinions or feelings. This moral relativism or subjectivism pulls people away from Christ because he is the object, he is the reality, he is the truth, and it's infecting and affecting our young people. And the reason I wanted to bring this up is I read... Uh, an article this week uh, that was referencing the Barna Group, where researchers found that 74% of Americans ages 13 to 21 believe what is, quote, morally right and wrong changes over time based on society. And that's a 7% increase from when they did the survey three years ago. So, Pastor Lightning, you teach high schoolers. I know you're new to it this year, but where do you see moral relativism among high school students? Uh, well, one of the big things would be that they want very much, many of them want very much to be politic, what society would call politically correct, uh, that they uh, want to, as much as they like to talk about uh, branching out on their own as teenagers and uh, not getting pinned down in some some sort of adults or parents' supervision, uh, they end up still following a crowd. Uh, it's just the crowd of uh, popular political opinion or social opinion. Um, and it's funny that you bring this up this week because what's interesting to me is that last semester, uh, th- there was at least one fairly uh, emotional discussion that uh, a bunch of the young ladies had with me about um, having children and how they were all talking about how they in no way wanted to have children, that they, they didn't think having kids was a good thing and uh, that they didn't want it for themselves. And a lot of those same ladies this semester, just this past week, got into a sort of another heated, not heated, but uh, emotional discussion with me about um, whether it's right or wrong to 
uh, use fertility measures like um, surrogacy or uh, sperm donors or uh, any kind of uh, yeah, in vitro fertilization, whatever it might be. And it was just interesting. You could see the relativism from last semester to this, that uh, the same group went from wanting uh, to talk about how they didn't want to have kids and shouldn't be forced to have kids or something like that. And now this semester, they're talking about how it would be, you know, it's it's advisable or a good thing to use maybe what some might consider to be questionable methods of uh, fertility. And that's kind of why I thought of moral relativism with chapter 10. Because if you've read this chapter, you see how Jesus talks about divorce and the blessing of children and wealth and suffering. But we live in a culture of no-fault divorce, where we don't protect the youngest of children in the womb. Or like you said, uh, young people are debating whether or not children are a blessing, uh, how many blessings they want to have, and they think that's their decision instead of God's. Where wealth and fame are seen as beneficial, and suffering is seen as detrimental. All of that's in Mark chapter 10. But it's our culture that has it backwards. And then this last Sunday, before church, I saw one of our second graders who had come to church with some little Lego people, five of them to play with. But I noticed they weren't just regular Lego people. They were Mandalorians. And, and I, I've always said that the only regret I've ever had with having four daughters is that I never got to play Star Wars Legos with my sons because my girls aren't interested in either Legos or Star Wars. But I liken playing Legos to moral relativism, that you can pick and choose what color or size Lego you want to build a house or a submarine or the Millennium Falcon. You can pick and choose what you want to believe with moral relativism. But to make something last, you build with proper building materials upon a firm foundation. We sang the hymn last Sunday, Built on the Rock. And in one of the verses we sang about the font, the pulpit, the altar, those are where the truths of God's word and sacraments are proclaimed to God's people who are living stones built upon the solid rock and foundation of Jesus Christ. That everything else in our culture is changing rapidly, but only Christ and his word are the rock-solid foundation that never changes. And so what we need for our young people is rock-solid apologetics, arguing the faith, catechesis, teaching the faith, teaching the truth, proclaiming with clarity, preaching definite right and wrong, God's will versus our human will. And uh, I think what I can uh, respond to is your, your talk about apologetics and defending our faith, because I sort of felt a little bit like that as uh, my students were asking me some hard questions about the uh, fertility issues or the uh, pregnancy, surrogacy, that type of thing. Uh, and what I pointed them to was Jesus. And I and and not to say, well, let's just discard your question and, and believe in Jesus because I said so. Um, no, uh, look at what Jesus did because he actually dealt with apologetics, like you just said, when uh, people came to him. And this is exactly what the students were doing too. Uh, 
In chapter 10, verse 2, some Pharisees came and tested him by asking, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And I, I pointed out to them, you're really putting me in a tough spot when you say, is in vitro or is uh, you know, surrogacy wrong? Uh, they're wanting me to make a judgment call. Is it right or wrong? And uh, I think Jesus gives us a great, uh, he's, he's first and foremost our savior from sin, uh, but he also does give us secondarily a great example to follow in verse three. He doesn't come right out and say, well, this is right and that is wrong, and, and that's the end of it. He answers their question with a question. He says, what did Moses command you? Uh, he points them back to God's word. And you're going to see this again. I don't mean to spoil uh, some of the chapters that we're going to get into, but you see this again with uh, uh, chapter 12 and marriage at the resurrection. Uh, the Sadducees came to Jesus and they said, is this right or wrong? Uh, there was this guy and he, uh, or there was this woman, and she had, um, you know, seven husbands, comes up with this harebrained uh, example and then says, now, is that right or wrong? And uh, that, that's going about it the wrong way. Uh, let's, uh, let's go back to God's word, but let's have a conversation about it. Uh, and let's not just pick out these hypothetical situations out of the blue. Uh, let's talk about, is there, is there a situation going on with you personally? And uh, maybe that would be something uh, that you could ask if somebody says, is divorce right or wrong? Well, Jesus makes it pretty clear. He doesn't want it to happen. Uh, but uh, yeah, I've... I've exhausted that enough, I think. <laughs> so let's go on to chapter 11. And Jesus is in Bethany uh, during the week, uh, which is right outside of Beth, uh, outside of Jerusalem. He's staying at the home of Mary and Martha and Lazarus, who is newly raised from the dead. And Mark, again, he's bringing these stories in and demonstrating Jesus' power and authority as he comes into Jerusalem as a king, as he uh, curses a fig tree. And Jesus was hungry for figs. I don't know anyone who's ever been hungry for figs. I tried figs once, Pastor Lightning, in, in Fig Newtons, and I think those are like the worst-tasting cookies ever. I disagree. Uh, I think we should have a debate about this right now. <laughs> uh, you couldn't be more wrong. I, I love I love figs and I love fig newtons. So no. yeah. nutter butters. That's that's better. Well, I, well, I'll agree on that okay. point. I think we can get along still. All right, uh, but Jesus demonstrates his power and authority, and yet humility as he comes into Jerusalem, as he curses the fig tree, uh, as he chases the money changers out of the court, and so forth. And again, his teaching. And here I was thinking about how many people say that we are living in a post-Christian era, that they believe that Christianity has had its time, and now it's a time of atheism, because they see that Christianity doesn't have power anymore. Well, and I think what I've heard the most is people saying, well, like secularists or atheists saying, uh, religion are, religions are failed sciences. 
that they, you know, mankind tried to come up with a way to explain the world around them, and uh, they came up with fantastical myths like the uh, Zeus and and uh, the Greek gods, and 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 Christians came up with their version of it. Uh, but now that we are enlightened and we we know science, uh, now we can discard religious belief, and uh, you, that's not that's not the way that uh, history works. When you look at Jesus, he, there, he was a real historic man. He wasn't a myth. He wasn't a spinoff of some Egyptian religion. He was a real person that walked this earth, and, and you, can, you can find historic documentation about him. And when you look at the events of chapter 11, I think it really shows that Christ and his religion, Christianity, is present and powerful that people are still clamoring for the gospel today. I just look at our ministry here at Epiphany, that we had a recent adult confirmation in December, that mom told me, I just love getting into God's word. Sign me up for more Bible studies. Uh, Two years ago, I baptized a mom and her four older children that were in her grade school, and now her eighth grade son who had no church growing up, he wants to become a pastor. Uh, People are questioning Christians and the Bible all the time. And what I'm going to encourage all of you to do is challenge them back. You don't need to defend Christ or the Bible. You simply need to open the Bible, use it, unleash the power of the Holy Spirit. Let him do the work for you. And that may be difficult living in a post Christian era where people are apathetic to the gospel, but that just gives us more opportunity to share the gospel who, with those people who don't think they need it. And that reminds me of a, you know, the great Martin Franzman hymn. Uh, he says in there, preach you the word and plant it home to those who like it or like it not. Uh, I, I think a, a good example of what you were just saying with post-Christian society is uh, maybe when when people talk about our country uh, being founded on Christian principles, uh, that is true to a certain extent. That uh, a great many of the founding fathers were uh, believed in a Judeo-Christian ethic of sorts. But uh, whether or not they trusted in Jesus for eternal salvation, I think, is debatable. Um, and uh, and and so I, I wouldn't. Maybe if anybody's listening and is having debates like this, that's probably not a strong argument to fall back on uh, to say that we were founded as a Christian country. That that's maybe not the best way to talk about it. I did want to make two points about uh, the uh, uh, moral relativism you were talking about in the last chapter, and uh, I, I think if you listen to what I was just saying a minute ago about how Jesus did not come down with a very decisive, this is right and that is wrong, when people challenged him. Um, That's a good tactic to use, like I said before, and at the same time, that could also be perceived as Jesus being a little bit morally relativistic. Um, He's not necessarily saying right up front, this is right and that is wrong. but of, of course, that's not the case. When you look at the end of chapter 11, he very much does have authority. That's what the whole debate is about. Uh, how can you just stand up, Jesus, and say these things and expect that people will accept them? Well, he does have authority. He speaks with authority, and that's the debate under question. And, and that's the second point I wanted to make, 
is uh, when when you when people listening to this podcast get into debates, uh, as as uh, Pastor Zarling was saying a second ago, um, a lot of times the thing that is brought up as the issue, I'd say most of the time, the thing that is brought up as the issue uh, with the person who is challenging you is almost never the issue. And and Jesus kind of gets at the heart of that with the way he handles this question. Uh, they the, the his, his opponents bring up the issue of where did you get this authority, and Jesus sort of uh, throws him a curveball and says, "Well, let's not talk about my authority. Let's talk about John the John the Baptist." Um, it it, it uh, gets it it catches them off guard and uh, it shows it, it it gets more to the root of the problem. And with that. Uh, that reminded me of teaching an adult confirmation class years ago with a couple. Admittedly, they did not want to become members. They just wanted a cheaper tuition to put their children in our school. So they were going through the classes, and we were talking about baptism and infant baptism. And I remember the guy stood up. We were all sitting down. He stood up and got right next to me. And he was a big guy, and I'm not big. And he said, you can't show me anywhere in the Bible that baptism saves. And he just turned to 1 Peter chapter 3 and says, baptism now saves you. And he sat down and he shut up and he listened. And and I tell that story because that's Jesus here in Mark chapter 11. He is very bold. He doesn't shrink from the truth, even though he knows he's in great danger. And hopefully that inspires you and I as Christians to be bold in our confession of Christianity, that here he has the authority to wither a fig tree at any time, and we too have authority not to do that, but to forgive sins, to convey the Holy Spirit on people. And so don't be afraid to do that. And then go on to chapter 12. So Pastor Lightning, last week I was trying to find something to watch on Netflix, and I watched the old movie Cool Hand Luke. Remember that movie? I I can't say that I've oh seen that. Goodness. I'm sorry. I'm old. I no, I'm just out of touch. <laughs> so in the movie, the warden famously says about Luke, what we have here is a failure to communicate. And I think that's the theme of chapter 11 of Mark. Jesus teaches about his coming into the vineyard of this world, but the Jews and the religious leaders are tenants who kill the son of the owner of the vineyard. Uh, The religious leaders are trying to trap Jesus with his words, but Jesus is the word made flesh. He cannot be trapped. The Sadducees try to trick Jesus with a question about the resurrection, but Jesus challenges them back since they don't even believe in the resurrection. They were expecting the Messiah to be greater than the king of, of Israel, the greatest king, David. Yet Jesus tells them they're confused because David's Lord is also David's son, which should make him less than David, and yet he is a Lord, so he should be greater than David. The rich people thought they were pleasing God by giving large sums of money, yet God looks at the heart and cherishes the widow's might, who gave out of her poverty. So the point is, Jesus has been communicating these teachings all along throughout his three years of ministry. Now he's in the final days of his life. He's teaching all of these things again, but there is a failure to communicate. But the failure is not on Jesus' end. 
It, I would even uh, take that uh, a step further, uh, that there could, there could be a failure to communicate. I think a lot of times when we uh, talk about the widow's might or the widow's offering, um, that uh, maybe a lot, of, a lot of sermons out there, maybe sermons that I've even preached uh, or Bible classes that I've taught on, on the widow's might. Oh, actually, that was uh, one of my uh, college assignments was to write a devotion on the widow's might. And my teacher, who still is at uh, Martin Luther College to this day, uh, wrote that I was actually being harsher with the rich people in my devotion than Jesus was. <laughs> um, and uh, I, I think maybe sometimes in our Americanized uh, versions of Christianity, uh, we can walk away from the widow's offering thinking that the main point is that God wants us to put more money in the offering plate. Uh, and maybe that is an application on one day for uh, the the thing that Jesus saw in the temple there, but uh, really the emphasis is more on the faith in the woman's heart that she trusted. And and you could even make an argument that when you put that next to uh, Jesus's uh, condemnation of the uh, rich people or the, the teachers of the law uh, and how they like to be recognized in public and that they devour widows' houses, it says in verse 40, and then there's a bit about the widow that follows it, that uh, maybe the point there uh, is more that this is an example of one of those widows who had her last coins uh, put in the offering plate because she was put under such pressure by uh, the the religious leaders of that time to make sure that she followed through on her uh, uh, offerings to the church. And so here, uh, just like in the last chapter, and we'll see it in the next chapter, you have the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Herodians trying to trap Jesus. And when Mark says uh, it's a trap, it just automatically reminds me of Admiral Akbar in, in Return of the Jedi. It's a trap! Uh, over and over again. So you got uh, the Sadducees and Pastor Lightning, they're so sad, you see. Uh-huh, uh, uh-huh. And the Pharisees are not fair, fair you, you see. see. Exactly. You got it. Uh, the Pharisees are not fair. You know, they, they're very judgmental. You know, the Sadducees do not believe in the resurrection. Uh, they don't believe in angels. And so when they're challenging Jesus about the woman having seven husbands, uh, notice how Jesus brings up, you don't even believe in the resurrection. You don't even believe in angels. And then, like I said before, uh, don't be afraid to challenge people when they try and question you because people will not, uh, they're not going to be challenged. They'll shut you down. They'll cancel you uh, and so forth. So just go back at them gently, uh, but powerfully with the word, just as, as Jesus does here. That, you know, in football, you take them where they want to go. I played soccer, so I took them where they didn't want to go. I took them to the ground by slide tackling. Yeah, I heard there's there's tackling in soccer, even if you don't. uh, Yeah. Um, No, uh, I'm totally derailed now. I can't. Oh, I think I just wanted to say that um, what, what people need to realize today is, as far as the Sadducees and the Pharisees go, um, the Sadducees were today what we would call the the progressives or the liberals. They thought that they were 
just far too educated to believe in silly things like angels and uh, bodies coming back to life and on the last day. And the Pharisees really were what we today would call the conservatives. Uh, and yet they, they just didn't like how loosey-goosey Jesus was being with uh, forgiving sinners. So now let's go on to chapter 13. So chapter 13 is all eschatology, which is the study of the end times. And a common analogy that we use for describing prophecy is looking at a mountain range from a distance, that you can see numerous peaks, but you don't know about the miles that separate them until you get close. For example, when you're driving to the Rocky Mountains, they all look close to each other. But when you're driving through them, you learn there's many miles that separate all the mountains in the range. And that's the way prophetic perspective works. For example, here in chapter 13 of Mark, Jesus is talking about the destruction of Jerusalem and his coming at the end of the world. In some places in Mark 13, Jesus is clearly talking about the events of the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD at the hands of the Romans. But in other places, Jesus is clearly talking about the events of the last day. And in some cases, he's talking about both. Uh, The one thing that I wanted to say about uh, chapter 13 and eschatology is very similar to what you, the point you just made about uh, how things from uh, of, uh, one perspective can look so similar, like the two mountains, even though they are so far apart. And uh, you think of that on a timeline that, uh, yeah, there's the destruction of Jerusalem and then uh, the end of the world uh, can both look so similar if you were sitting uh, in the shoes of the disciples that Jesus was talking to. And uh, to a degree, they sort of uh, brought this upon themselves because uh, they asked him uh, in verse 4, tell us when will these things happen and what will be the sign that they are all about to be fulfilled? Uh, So they sort of asked Jesus two questions there. Uh, What's going to happen at the end of the world and uh, what's going to happen when the temple is destroyed? And they they assumed that those two things are... um, at, are going to be at the same time. And uh, Jesus answers both questions at the same time because, yes, they're going to be very similar, but they're going to happen at different times. And uh, this is why I'm reminded of the book of Revelation. Um, I, I love Revelation, and I I could talk all day about it and dig into it uh, in the whole class period and more with my students if, I, if, I, if you let me go with it. Um, but I think that uh, Revelation is so hard to interpret just because of that point, that uh, people think, well, the, uh, the beast that came out of the earth or the beast that came out of the sea, that must be just one particular thing that is uh, going to happen in the future. Uh, and the fact is, no, it's a typological uh, book. And what I mean by that is it describes a whole category, a bunch of different types of things that are very similar to each other. So when you have the rider on the red horse, uh, Jesus here talks about 
wars and, and rumors of wars, well, that's the rider on the red horse. Uh, it's not just one particular war. It's not just the Thirty Years' War or World War II. It's all of the wars, and it kind of just keeps happening. There's a pattern to it that looks very similar, sort of like the mountains you just described. And we get to read and then talk about Revelation in our daily readings in August. I look forward to that. All right. Yeah, and I also want to bring up one last thing in in Mark chapter 13. Uh, Jesus warns his disciples of all ages, saying there's going to be persecution. He says, be on your guard. People are going to hand you over to councils. You're going to be beaten in the synagogues. You're going to stand in the presence of rulers and kings. Uh, brother will betray brother to death, father his child, children will rise up against their parents, you will be hated by everyone because of my name. Uh, And yet, he says that the gospel will be preached to the ends of the earth. And I've said this for years, that what we need in America, Pastor Lighton, is a good old-fashioned persecution. I've heard that from other people. Yep. Well, they're quoting me, I think. I bet. I bet. Uh, that we as American Christians have become lazy, lackadaisical, apathetic in our Christianity. We are like the lukewarm Laodiceans in Revelation 3.16 that Jesus threatens to spit out of his mouth. And friends, all you need to do is look around at the way the government has shut down churches in America and around the world. Big tech is... And and we've been accepting of it. And we've been accepting it, yep. Big tech is silencing conservative sites. Our culture is canceling anyone who does not toe the line with their depravity that they're promoting this week. And as Christians, we may decry this censorship and difficulty, but rather, we should welcome it. We pray that God is using this persecution to wake us, move us, grow us, revive the dying Christian church in America. So like I said, I'm very out of touch, uh, and, and maybe I shouldn't pursue this, but what did you have a particular depravity this past week that you were referring to? Or? Well, I guess you could, you could look at what uh, the new president is saying about transgender athletes would be one. Okay. That would be one. I mean, like I said, I'm out of touch. I I didn't yeah. know much about that. But that's what I said. Just one of this week so, and next week, it'll be another one. Sure, sure. And and yet we don't need to be afraid of this persecution because in those same words where Jesus is promising persecution, He also promises that the Holy Spirit is going to give you the right words to say. He promises that the gospel is going to be preached to all nations before he comes. So what that means is if the government shuts down churches or big tech shuts down our online worship services and one avenue is closed to the gospel, Jesus is going to open up another avenue. Jesus promises that his gospel cannot be stopped. His judgment cannot be stopped. It's coming whether people are prepared or not, whether people are trying to stop it or us welcoming it. And God's judgment is going to be terrifying for his enemies, but his judgment is to be welcomed and comforting for us as Christians. And if I can just uh, follow up on that, the uh, part about Jesus saying, don't worry about what to say, 
ahead of time, I'll give you the words. First of all, that was talking to his apostles, that uh, he, gives, he gave them the words to testify about his resurrection from the dead, uh, even when they were being tortured and killed for it. Um, and so they shouldn't worry. Uh, don't jump right to applying that for us in the 21st century. That was his apostles and disciples uh, back then. But uh, the other thing is, I, I had another teacher in college who did a chapel devotion on that where he said, I don't want any students thinking that uh, this is Jesus giving you a license not to prepare for tests, that uh, he'll just give you the words <laughs> to say when you have to take the test. But... Uh, now, in now that I've had a few years since I've been in college, um, I, I've come to appreciate those words of Jesus because I, I might just put my own spin on it to say, um, Jesus is telling us there not to overthink it. Uh, don't don't. I I personally am tempted to overthink things, and uh, Jesus is saying just just go with the flow. Uh, you've you've been schooled in, in my word and you've gone through uh, the Bible and, and you know you know my words, uh, just go and say what they are. And then the only other thing I wanted to just add on to what you said about the uh, gospel being preached is a little spoiler when we get when we get to Revelation, um, I, that's how I interpret the white horse, the rider on the white horse. Uh, some have said that might be false religion uh, with all the bad forces on the horses. Uh, but uh, when you look at the Gospels here, like Jesus says, uh, there's wars, there's uh, famine, there is death and, and people getting sent to hell, but there's also the Gospel being preached. You can't stop that rider on the white horse. Yeah, exactly. And, and I believe the same way you do with that white horse and all the horses, to understand what's going on in Revelation, it makes it a lot easier if you read Mark chapter 13 and Matthew 24, because it just flows uh, right from Jesus' discourses there. And then the last chapter for our study is Mark chapter 14. And I, I wanted to point this out to everyone. You know, Mark's gospel is only 16 chapters. So chapters 11 through 16 are covering Jesus last week. That's almost 40% of Mark's gospel is spent just on Holy Week. And then chapters 14 through 16 are the events of Thursday through Sunday. That's almost 20% of Mark's gospel is written about four days. So these are obviously important four days in Jesus' life. Uh, And we said uh, in our introduction of Mark's gospel that it's a breathless gospel. The events move quickly. And you notice that especially when you read through Mark chapters 14 through 16. That, that struck me when I was getting ready for this uh, recording session that uh, I, I thought, we, we just started, Mark. I, we're already at the Passion? Uh, the, yeah, it is so fast. Uh, and then, and then I, I never thought of that. You kind of gave me an aha moment right now uh, that he spends so much time on Jesus' Passion and Holy Week. Um, and, and it just makes me think, uh, I was talking to uh, somebody else in the office here a minute ago uh, about being glad that this week was done, and uh, he said, yeah, I'm glad this week is done too, and uh, uh, that the Holy Week was an action-packed week. There was a lot jammed into it. And we're not going to be able to cover everything, either today or next week, when we finish up Mark's Gospel, because there are full sermons on each of these texts. on the anointing of Jesus with perfume, the plans to betray him, 
celebrating the Passover, instituting the Lord's Supper. So my encouragement to you is go to church for your midweek Lenten worship services. It doesn't really matter what uh, your church's overall theme for Lent is. The pastors in your Lenten rotation are going to review these and other events. You're going to hear the Passion History of Christ in the last five sun, last five Wednesdays, uh, and they're going to apply law and gospel to your lives. You know, Pastor Lightning and I, we enjoy doing this podcast, and we pray that you're learning something from it. We are, but this the podcast is not meant to be a substitute for your pastor's Bible studies or sermons or the Lord's Sacrament. It's a podcast as a Bible study in addition to all those other things. Uh, maybe since uh, you sort of picked the theme of uh, failure to communicate for the uh, previous chapters of the uh, Mark's Gospel, um, I guess I, I sort of see a theme throughout uh, chapter 14, and that is um, the, the, the prodigal Jesus. Uh, and if you don't know what the word prodigal means, uh, it means wasteful. And uh, maybe maybe another way to put it would be the generous Jesus. That uh, Jesus is is just uh, generously, almost wastefully generous with uh, how he gives out grace. And uh, you can you can see that theme with the woman anointing Jesus. That uh, uh, he is not stingy about giving out his praise or compliments of her. Um, that. Uh, she, you know, some might say this was not a good use of her money. In fact, that's what some of Jesus' disciples did say. And he said, no, don't uh, scold her for how she decided to use her money. Uh, this, and this is a beautiful thing she did, and it's a testimony to my resurrection. Um, and then you've got the sacrament of, of Jesus' body and blood. Uh, take it, this is my body, uh, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Uh, so many times, uh, you probably have this with your uh, adult instruction classes, uh, and young kids ask it uh, in confirmation and, and in high school, uh, why, why did God give sacraments? He could just say that you're forgiven through his word, and that would be good enough. Or why did he give two sacraments? He could just wash away our sins in baptism. Why do we need to have sins forgiven in, in uh, communion? Um, well, it's the wastefully generous Jesus uh, giving out forgiveness not only in one way, but in many ways. Um, and then you've got uh, Jesus in... Oh, oh, th- this is one that was especially meaningful to me. I recently had the 10-year anniversary for uh, be, uh, in celebrating a, a ministry landmark, and uh, one of the presenters there pointed out something that Jesus said in verse 34, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. And the presenter just said to, to all of us in the room, um, Jesus was overwhelmed. And, and that, that was really meaningful to me that uh, Jesus knows how it feels to be overwhelmed. Um, and, 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 then, and then you've got uh, uh, Jesus, well, Mark doesn't really report it as far as I can see here, uh, but Jesus healed the ear of the man who, one of the men who was arresting him, ge- wastefully generous. And then uh, uh, I guess I'd just end with um, when Peter denied knowing Jesus, uh, again, Mark's gospel may not go into a lot of detail about it, but 
Jesus looked right at Peter. And you might think, well, why did uh, Jesus look at Peter? Was he rebuking him? Was he kind of giving him a raised eyebrow and saying, uh, well, see, I told you that was going to happen? Or, as somebody once pointed out to me, um, do you look at somebody when you're furious at them? More often, you would not want to make eye contact with somebody that you're mad at. And and it, it's sort of a loving thing also that Jesus made eye contact with Peter, uh, really uh, wastefully generous. And I wanted to finish up, too, with talking about Peter's denial. I just was writing my sermon for this Sunday on Jesus crossing the road from driving out the demon in the Capernaum synagogue to going into Peter's house and healing his mother-in-law's fever. And, and I reminded the people that Mark's gospel is really Peter's gospel. How often must he have told that story about this miracle? Even though you've seen lots of other miracles Jesus would do, this one was personal. The same thing here, that Mark's gospel is really Peter's gospel. It's Peter's description, the inspiration by the Holy Spirit. And so how painful must this have been for Peter? as he recounted this story over and over again in his preaching and witnessing about Christ. And then he tells it to Mark to record as inspired scripture for generations until the end of time to read. And yet this gives us a wonderful testimony as Christians that we witness best to others by coming humbly, often offering up our own confession and sinfulness so that others are willing to hear the message of Jesus as a savior of their sorry lives too. And then also, you know, the disciples, they take off and they run away from Jesus during the last hours of his life. Aside from watching Jesus earn our salvation, disciples learn that Jesus also won their salvation by himself. They did nothing to help him. They ta- uh, This taught them to look to him alone for their salvation. These events taught them humility because they could take no pride in their salvation uh, other than being proud of Jesus. It taught them patience uh, that even though some of them might desert him or betray him or deny him, just like Mark deserted Paul and Barnabas, but Paul welcomed Mark back, so Jesus welcomed Peter and and the other apostles, and he was willing to welcome Judas back, too. He, he would have dearly wanted that. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't have a whole lot more to say on chapter 14 unless you want me to uh, tell you about family devotion the other night. Fantastic. We, we had... Uh, so we we went through this section actually not too long ago, and uh, I, we were talking about how the uh, servant girl came up to Peter in the courtyard and uh, saw him around the fire. And uh, after a little while, it says in verse 70, those standing near said to Peter, surely you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. He had an, an accent similar to uh, Jesus's. And so I, I sort of just said to the boys... Um, so it would kind of be like if uh, Jesus was in the uh, Sanhedrin on trial and uh, he was saying, uh, th- th- this might sound kind of weird, but uh, imagine Jesus saying, uh, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One uh, in English, 
And then here's Peter out in the courtyard saying, I don't know that man. I've never seen that man before in my life. They, they both had, they sound the same way. Everybody must have, yeah, probably chuckling a little bit that but you've got to be a Galilean. You sound exactly like Jesus. That's right. Yeah. People, people knew when I was a pastor down in Kentucky, they could pick up right away. I wasn't from Kentucky. I sound like I'm from Wisconsin. Uh, so the encouragement for you is to read Mark chapters 15 and 16 and then read Jonah chapters 1, 2, and 3 or listen to Pastor Hagen read it to you and explain it next week. Stay thirsty, my friends, and drink deeply from the water of life.